my name is Dave Hollenbach, the host of From Members to Excellence, a podcast that explores the many facets of leadership from the perspectives of some amazing people. We discuss the triumphs and failures that have shaped our lives and our leadership philosophies. I've found that it isn't whether we fail that defines us, but when we do fail, how we respond. Leaders dust off the ashes and use their failures as fuel to work harder and as lessons to come back wiser and stronger, more resilient, more determined, and more committed to excellence. Today, I'm speaking with John O'Brien. John earned a PhD in counseling psychology from Michigan State University in 1996. He is an adjunct faculty member at the University of Maine at Augusta, teaching courses in psychology and addictions. He has held numerous leadership positions and professional organizations, including having served as president of the Maine Psychological Association and currently is co-chair of continuing education for the APA Society of Consulting Psychologists. John is an ICF ACC certified coach and NBHWC certified health and wellness coach. <laughs> he coaches leaders in a variety of fields, including business, healthcare, and law. I will have a link to his website where you can read uh, so much more about him. It's an incredible website. He offers quite a bit of, of coaching and uh, professional development, um, counseling service, like just go to his website. You'll see what I'm talking about. There's a ton of stuff on there. Uh, plus his personal story, which is uh, pretty intriguing as well. And I, I think we'll uh, touch on some of it today, but um, John, I want to thank you for, for coming on and, and having this conversation with me. I think that uh, what we're going to talk about can help a lot of people and uh, really maybe cause some of the organizational leaders uh, in our culture to reflect and maybe examine their own behavior. Mm -hmm. So it, that being said, let's begin with where you were born and raised. Okay. Um, well, first of all, Dave, thank you for having me. And you did an excellent job making your way through all those acronyms with all <laughs> those cert certifications and other things that I have. So, <laughs> so thank you for thank you for that. So, uh, yeah. So I was um, born and raised uh, outside Boston, uh, in the Boston area. So grew up going to Catholic schools for the first 16 years of my life. Um, and as I always say, I, I was raised Irish Catholic, not just Irish not just Catholic, but the special brand of Irish Catholic, the mixing of those two. So uh, culture and religion were really a focal part of my growing up. And I think served as an important foundation for my view of the world, my view of um, life and the uh, encouragement that I got to pursue higher education. It was highly valued. Um, I think my grandfather graduated from high school and my grandmother finished the eighth grade. Um, so my parents' generation was the first generation to go to college and to, uh, my mother got a master's degree. 
but I'm the first one in the family to get, as I like to call it, a piled higher and deeper PhD. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, but so I uh, got my my doctorate in counseling psychology and uh, have since pursued training and work in the clinical field. Primarily, I've had had a psychotherapy practice for about 25 years, um, and a few years ago decided to pursue my interest in the overlap of psychology with business. Um, and that that's kind of what has led me to working more in the coaching realm. And that's part of why I'm speaking with you today. Obviously, you, your early influences that, that kind of led you on this path. Um, you, you mentioned it, your, your upbringing and the Irish Catholic faith and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, an example uh, of your mother going and achieving higher education, but more specifically, what got you interested in, in psychology? Mm -hmm. Well, I think I mentioned this, and this may be what you're alluding to on my website, that when I was uh, 15, my father had a near fatal heart attack. So up until that point, he had been kind of a high achieving um, business executive and we were actually up here in Maine where I live now because we actually ended up moving to Maine in the middle of high school. We moved from, uh, from Maine, uh, from, excuse me, from Massachusetts up to Maine where I went to public school. But at the time uh, in April of, uh, of 1981, um, I was with my dad planning to go look at high schools uh, up in Maine and uh, he ended up having a near fatal heart attack. So uh, that kind of caused a significant disruption in our family. Um, and I saw what that did to him, uh, what that meant for our family. He was never able to work again after that and kind of lived with rather frail health until he died when he was 63 at a very young age. So I saw, I saw what unmanaged stress in an executive can do. And it's not like I necessarily thought I need to go, I need to go out there and kind of make sure that there other, aren't other people who experience what my dad did and what our family did. But I think that that was perhaps one of the underlying mechanisms that drove me to pursue the career of psychology and now the overlap with business. In your bio on your website, mm -hmm. you talk about um, building a practice uh, once, you, once you started practicing psychology and having a couple of partners being uh, more business savvy than you. And I guess that's really uh, the catalyst for getting interested in that, that side of it. Is that correct? Yeah, I would say that, um, uh, that, that there were, uh, I mean, I was a, a young pup psychologist when I first joined the practice with my Sigmund Freud lunchbox, as I always say. Um, <laughs> and the other people were more experienced. It just so happened I stumbled into this group practice that was starting with people who were more experienced in the field, um, maybe knew just a little bit more than I did in terms of the business realm, but that was what got me into owning a business, understanding how it, how it operated, and yes, then um, got me more interested in the whole area of business and how to be an effective leader, because uh, in this group, each of us takes turn as a managing partner. And as the years have gone on, and there are, uh, it's like the episode of Survivor, 
like who's left on the island. So right now there's four of us left on the island and at the end of this year, there'll be three of us. So you're taking turns more and more frequently being the managing partner and just understanding all that goes into doing a, you know, managing a business. One thing that really interested me about some of your focuses on um, developing organizational leaders and, and helping them develop good self-care habits. Mm -hmm. And I, I was wondering if you would elaborate on that and, and how you coach somebody and, and what does good self-care look like? Yeah, so I think people talk about work-life balance, which makes it sound like work isn't a part of life. When in fact, you know, again, depending upon the stage of life that we are at, often some form of work is an essential part of life. So rather than talking about it from a perspective of work-life balance, I, I get people to think about balanced living. Now, when it comes to then figuring out what's balance gonna look like, uh, one of my colleagues had written a book a few years ago about stress management and about balanced living and talked about it as, think of your life as an exhibit. Think of your life as an art exhibit and you get to decide what's in the exhibit. You get to decide what's the feature, what, what you don't include or what's more or less prominent. So I, I like to use that analogy with people that I coach is that you actually have to figure out what you want your life to look like. And maybe you love your work, but it's got too much of an emphasis in your life to the exclusion of other things that you do enjoy. Or maybe your work is stressing you out and it's because it's got too prominent a role in your life. So that's what I, first of all, get people to think about what, what role does work play in their lives and what do they want it to play? That's one thing. Second, I think, is getting people to be more self-aware. And I've heard you talk to other people about this as well, about mindfulness and mindful awareness, and which then feeds into skills of emotional intelligence, of being able to be self-aware, regulate yourself, interact effectively with other people and maybe even have to help regulate other people. So all those things can be important as far as a leader is concerned. And then it's just the kind of the basics that we also think about, about exercise and nutrition and sleep and figuring out what's realistic and possible. The other thing I would say is that sometimes depending upon the, the business or the organization you are in, that there may be a norm especially an unhealthy norm that's either expected or just kind of understood uh, and that people have to then determine is can they, can they go against that norm in the environment that they're in or do they actually perhaps have to change environments? I mean, I remember a few years ago reading in, I can't remember what business magazine it was, but about these young, these you know, up and coming leaders and they were giving out awards to these up and coming leaders, um, one of whom, talked about his daily schedule in which he got home at 1130 at night and got up at three and was out the door by four. And, and so he was getting an award. And then this other woman who, uh, she was a dedicated leader. She had a hysterectomy and she was still conducting meetings from her couch the day after or something crazy like that. I'm thinking, this is really unhealthy people. Um, so 
you know, what what's getting rewarded in your organization? Is there a space? And I think I think organizations are changing, but I think is there space in your organization to actually do what we call self-care? And some there are, there is space and some there isn't. I mean, for that to shift, if the organization really has that unhealthy culture, I mean, that's got to, I think that would be very difficult to make that shift. It, well, it is because, I mean, organizations have their own lives, you know, and sometimes you take people out of an organization, put new people in, but that dynamic stays the same because it's like, it's always been this way. And so people join the organization and you would think bring someone new in and that's going to shift the dynamic. But if the dynamic is well entrenched enough, it's not going to shift. It's going to stay the same. That actually reminds me of a story. Uh, you probably know this story. It's uh, the one, uh, I don't even know if it was an actual study, but it does a really good job of illustrating what you're talking about. Uh, this group of scientists puts a, a group of monkeys in this uh, enclosure. They put a ladder in the middle of the enclosure and hang a, a beautiful bunch of bananas right above that ladder. And they see it. One monkey goes up, climbs the ladder to get a banana, and they dump a bunch of water on all of them. And anytime any one of those monkeys goes to try and get a banana, a, a bunch of water dumps on them. It gets to the point where if a new monkey is introduced and tries to climb that ladder, the other monkeys will attack that monkey. Exactly. And at some point, they switch all of the monkeys out, all of the original monkeys, they don't use the water anymore, but the same behavior remains and none mm -hmm. of them know the original cause. Right. And it just seems like that happens a lot in organizational culture. Absolutely, that there are many uh, dynamics that get handed down or, and, and when people, who are new to the organization, like, well, why do we do this? Well, we've always done it this way. Like, um, but there is, there is no good reason or there'd be reasons to do it differently. But that is, I don't wanna leave your listeners on the hopeless side of this, right. Dave. Like, so you know what? <laughs> so you're just gonna get water dumped on you. You'll never get the bananas, like just forget it, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, um... <laughs> I, I really hope that they they <laughs> feeling like I was going in that direction. I, I was actually just trying to express some empathy uh, yes. to to certain individual situation. Um, yeah, I've been there. I think we've all been there. But there is another side to that coin, and um, I, I was really curious when you're coaching somebody that may be in that situation. Maybe they're the top executive. Because I know that you do a lot of executive coaching. Yep. Um, how how often do you actually coach a high level executive in in changing the culture of an organization? Many times, people 
don't necessarily come to me and say, will you help me change my organizational culture? Um, but it's more that you get the light bulbs to go on for the individual and for them to recognize that, okay, there are these unhealthy dynamics that, that um, are in the organization and especially ones that they've been contributing to or maintaining, but without awareness. So I think helping leaders understand that they have, they're in a unique position to be able to set a different tone in an organization and to help to change and shift the culture and that it's gonna take time. You don't just walk in one day and say, okay, we're gonna do everything. We're gonna do different things now and it's all gonna be great and we're all gonna live balanced lives. No, it's that, that organizations, it's like turning a cruise ship. You don't just do it like you do a car. It takes a long time to, to move that ship and it's sort of a similar thing. The larger an organization, the longer it's gonna take for that organization to shift. You mentioned some of the behaviors or dynamics of, of, of culture that you know, some of the leaders may not be aware of um, that may be subtle. And, and we mentioned that, or we talked about this a little bit before we started recording, mm -hmm. the, um, some of the challenges that leaders face, uh, one of them being incivility. And I was hoping that you would talk about that and explain that and how toxic it can become. Sure. So incivility in summary is behavior that is outside the range of what would typically be expected of respectful behavior people have for one another. In that way, it can be a little challenging because it's subjective about the way that's experienced by the target. In other words, people can be uncivil to each other, but not be aware that someone is experiencing it in that way. So, but let's put, keep that to the side for a moment. So again, behavior that is outside the range of what would be typically considered respectful, and it can present in three ways. The first way is an interpersonal incivility, making, um, jokes, rude jokes at a coworker's expense, sort of you know, crossing that line from humor to sarcasm, making belittling comments, uh, just generally be, you know, gossiping. Those would be types of things people would do interpersonally. Then there's cyber incivility. So that's the incivility people engage in in sending rude text messages, rude emails, um, social media. <laughs> I mean, I can have a field day if we pulled up social media right now, just because that's, that's often what our culture has become, is people are just, the norm is that, you know, incivility is seen as what's to be expected. And the rather hilarious side story I'll just tell you is the, the first time I heard about incivility, Christine Porath was presenting at a national conference I will not say the name of the national conference to protect them. But the real hilarious thing is she's talking about incivility and someone, a member of the audience actually started to engage in uncivil behavior in asking her about incivility. <laughs> Thinking, is there any self-awareness left in this room? I mean, it was just really quite interesting. Like you're actually being uncivil in a presentation on incivility. 
Um, but so there's, but, but, but I get uh, sidetracked. So there's interpersonal incivility, there's cyber incivility, which could also happen in a Zoom conference like this with people saying rude things about others in the chat. And then there's finally my favorite, not favorite because I do it, but my favorite form of incivility, which is kind of targetless or anonymous or victimless, where it's doing things like leaving the copy machine jammed at, uh, so that when someone comes whipping around the corner to try to make a quick copy, they have to stop and repair it. Or, you know, uh, leaving uh, just a little bit of coffee in the community coffee maker, not enough for a full cup so that someone coming whipping in has to then clean it and start all over. I mean, these seemed seemingly small things. I mean, again, some of what I've described may seem kind of moderately stressful and, you know, coffee machine or, or coffee machine, not having enough coffee. This is a small thing. But, but the point is that those small or medium things can build up in the individual who's in that environment to the place where it leads to frustration, anger, volatility in the individual. And depending upon what we're talking about, the person can start getting so frustrated and feeling so disrespected in that environment that they start doing things like uh, purposefully showing up uh, late to meetings, um, kind of uh, coming late to work or um, not trying, reducing the amount that they're trying, maybe even start to use work time at this job to be looking for another job. So it's incivility with these sort of subtle ways can still be quite corrosive for an organization. It's really interesting because I, I, I feel like it gets looked over because it seems so insignificant. Correct. Almost like if somebody complains about it, you'd be like, oh, come on, don't have such thin skin. Right. But over time, if that continues, just, you know, it, it does add up. It's like the examples that sometimes given of just like a single water drop on a piece of wood or some surface or whatever that over time can do damage. It may take a long time, but eventually is doing significant damage. One thing that uh, that struck me, and I think it was our our email exchange. It was four word: the upside of trauma. Mm -hmm. Can you explain that? Um, yes. So um, we tend to think about trauma, people going through something traumatic as negative. And people sometimes confuse experiencing a trauma with being permanently affected by a trauma and potentially having post-traumatic stress disorder as a result of a traumatic experience. So, and this uh, really became clear to me many years ago, I've presented to audiences on trauma and PTSD and effective treatment for those disorders. But I was presenting to this audience and about you know, trauma and the definition of trauma that I was using came out of a clinical textbook. And it said something like um, uh, the um, permanent damage, whatever that can be done to an individual as a result of experiencing a, st a stressful event. It was something like that. But someone raised their hand in the audience and said, um, excuse me, 
uh, is trauma always going to cause permanent negative damage? It was like one of those, you know, Scooby-Doo moments. <laughs> what? Um, and I said, uh, oh, you're right. You know, like, wait a minute here. You're right. That does it. That's, that's the definition we think of clinically because the people that are going to show up in our office are people who have been perhaps damaged or affected by some sort of stressor. But that's not everybody's truth. And it was um, a few years later that apparently someone stole my idea. No, they didn't steal my idea, but started writing about the fact that people can go through traumatic events and experience something called post-traumatic growth, which is that not that it isn't stressful and they don't have to kind of work their way through the recovery process from what they've experienced, but maybe as a result of going through that traumatic event, they suddenly have a greater appreciation for life and just experience a lot of gratitude for now, I, like for every day they have beyond that. There's a greater sense of spirituality that people develop and that often deepens if they experience you know, a traumatic event. Uh, and finally, a deepening of relationships and a greater appreciation for relationships. So there's a whole field now talking about the idea of post-traumatic growth and that that's, there's actually a book called, I don't, I forget the author, but it's called The Upside of Trauma. So if people want to read more about that, uh, I would suggest that you look up that, that book. I've recently had a, a conversation with, I want to say her name is Julia Jack. Okay. It, it was on this show. I haven't published the episode yet, mm -hmm. but we had this conversation where we were talking about these these crash and burn moments in our life the lessons that we learned how we how we grew from those experiences mm -hmm. and that now that we're on the other side of those not that we're not going to experience failures anymore but i think we're more prepared and and understand that we are more resilient than we knew back then. Yep. And maybe our, our job or our purpose, you know, when, when I got into this, I was thinking that I could share some of the mistakes I've had or, or I've made to help others avoid the same mistakes. Well, that, that's good, but people are still gonna make those mistakes. I think in that case, and, and knowing the growth that came out of making some of those mistakes, mm -hmm. maybe just being the person that, that's there to help them up, dust them off and say, this, this isn't gonna destroy you. You have a long way ahead. This can actually be very good. You're not done yet. Don't give up keep pushing through. I, I think if, and I think that's probably exactly what you do a lot of the time. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's, uh, I, I know, I mean, I've, I was diagnosed with PTSD years ago and struggled through some really dark times, but I feel like now I can be more empathetic towards people mm -hmm. that that are struggling with things, mm -hmm. um, and 
I can speak more intelligently on what you go through when you're battling those demons. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And I think uh, that it's possible to work your way through an experience like that to get to the place where you can think about the experience differently. I mean, one of the techniques that I've used in my therapy career is eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. I don't know if you've heard of that. MDR? Yeah. Um, but basically, it's um, a technique that helps. I mean, there are a variety of techniques. There's lots of different ways that, that um, well, are I'll, used. I'll, I'll tell you that out of everything that I've done, that was the most effective. Yeah. That, that w- it was incredible. It was like voodoo. It, yeah, well, it is, <laughs> right? It really is. Yeah. Um, because... Uh, and the way that the founder, Francine Shapiro, discovered it, she just, you know, while walking on the beach and she was noticing a negative thought, she just happened to move her eyes in a certain direction and then brought herself back and was like, wait a minute, I'm not thinking about it in the same way. And then she did it again and, and then um, really uh, worked to then test that with friends of hers. And then she used it with some veterans and then really was like, I seem to be onto something. But, you know, when that first... Um, emerged as a possible treatment, she was discredited. Um, people thought, this is, it is, it's voodoo. Um, it's like, it's so, you're moving your eyes and you're doing this and it's so simple that this is, you know, there must be something to this. And, you know, I will confess, because we're all about confessions here, I think, I will confess that when I went to my first training on EMDR, when they were gonna be having an EMDR training in the Portland, Maine area where I am, I did think to myself, eh, I'll go get some continuing ed credits. And, you know, the snake oil salesman's coming to town. I'll go check this out. Uh, but uh, part of what you do in the training is you do your own work. Because if you're a, a good therapist or coach, you're kind of always trying to be self-aware. So, you know, I actually targeted something that was painful from my past that um, I thought I had kind of worked through. And I had this really intense reaction. I was like, what is going on here? And then it, that proved to me there's really something to this. So... Um, you know, some people are like, oh, well, Brian, you, you would drink in the Kool-Aid then when you sort of, you know, join that. But you, you know, having experienced that yourself, there's really something to the, that technique that, again, doesn't work for everybody. But for those people it does work for, it really is interesting where it, it like picks your brain up and moves it to a different place so that you can think differently about the event and about your role in the event. It was really amazing. And when I went there, I I was, I had the mindset of, I will try anything right now. I'm freaking miserable. I, you know, I was, I was scraping bottom and I was willing to do anything. And I just wish that somebody had offered that or that I had even been aware of it prior to getting that bad. Mm-hmm. Um, I, it's, uh, yeah, phenomenal. I am a, a huge advocate for EMDR. Yeah, yeah, and it's, and I think, you know, the, when it was first introduced in late, like 89 in the 90s, you know, all through that time, through the 90s into even the early 2000s, there was, it was really a technique that had been discredited. 
um, because research that was initially done on EMDR showed, some research showed that it didn't really work, but it's because the people that were doing EMDR in these research designs had not been trained in EMDR and were just like, hey, just move your eyes in this way to people. So it didn't work, but when they actually, when research was done with clinicians who were trained in the techniques, it, it works really well. So the, the interesting thing is we still don't know for sure exactly how it works. There's a theory of how it works, but we, the important thing is we know it does work. So it's really been like the past, I would say 15-ish years that it's a technique that has become more widely accepted and available. So it's, you know, the, and PTSD as a diagnosis was only first uh, made as official diagnosis in 1980. So it's taking, you know, it's, it's not that, it's not that, um, you know, uh, we still have a long way to go in terms of understanding. It's only been around for, you know, 42-ish whatever years. So, so that may seem like a long time, but in the world of diagnosis, it isn't. So we, we have certainly more to learn about effective treatments for trauma as well as other things. In the 1980s, it's when they, they first put PTSD in the DSM. Correct. And prior to that, you know, combat vets, what was it considered shell shock or? Shell shock, um, soldier's heart. I think that was in world, was it World War II or um, the Civil War was soldier's heart. So it had been written about since, um, you know, uh, you know, millennium. I mean, it had been written about, but more in religious texts. And, and, and people would write about it clinically, but it was never actually formulated as an official diagnosis. And even in 1980, it was only for soldiers. It was only for combat veterans. And I mean, certainly glad that it got into the diagnosis, diagnostic um, nomenclature then, but it still has you know, taken years for us to develop an understanding about the different types of things that can create PTSD, including more recently, there's been literature that says that people who have a heart attack or stroke, something like one in seven or one in eight of those people will develop PTSD about that experience of having um, a heart attack or stroke. And I'm, I'm firmly convinced that it's only a matter of time until cancer and the experience of having cancer and fighting cancer becomes another diagnosis that we discover creates PTSD in people. So. We're still expanding our knowledge about what are the types of events that actually can create, that are traumatic and can create PTSD. It seems like uh, across the board, one of the main components that you can find in any experience that leads to the symptoms of PTSD is that sense of having zero control over what happens to you and what is going on in your, in your world. Mm -hmm. When you lose that control and bad things happen, it's, I think it can be very, well, it's very traumatizing. Yeah, precisely. It is right. Yeah. Right. And it's, it's that powerlessness that also creates a sense of hopelessness yeah. in people that those two things often go together. And it's, um, you know, and, and the reality is that there are ways in which we are powerless in our lives. We have limited, you know, limited power. So it's about also accepting that. Um, 
and ultimately helping people get to the place where they can think about themselves in that situation. Like, you know, bad things are going to happen, and you know, bad things have happened. Bad things are, are you know, are going to happen. But if we can say, "I did the best I could," um, that uh, I, I, you know, I tried to help, um, as opposed to thinking it's my fault or like I'm a bad person. This happened to me because I'm a bad person. Um, helping people change the way they see themselves um, and the way they see their experiences. Because you go through something like that and you develop this mindset of I'm powerless or it's hopeless. You carry that mindset then with you into other life experiences in the present, so. Several times the, the word mindfulness has come up in this conversation. Mm -hmm. And I think there's there's a lot of different ways people define it or describe it, or I, I think it's used frivolously mm -hmm. uh, nowadays. Mm -hmm. can, can you talk about what it is really? <laughs> really yeah i mean like just between us like we're not going to tell the rest of them but i'll tell you the secret about it. <laughs> well, i i think that if if explained the the listeners that may have a uh a distorted understanding of what it is could maybe adjust things and, and see the value in it. Yes. It, it's not just some hippie, uh, you know, <laughs> some, something that hippies do when they're <laughs> together, <you know? laughs> at those hippie hangouts, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, so, well, here, so here's, there's lots of different definitions of mindfulness. And I completely agree with you that, I mean, I started teaching mindfulness back in the 1990s when I was first trained in it as part of uh, a clinical program that I was learning called dialectical behavior therapy that has mindfulness at its foundation. But as, since then, like, okay, all of a sudden, we're all gonna be mindful. Um, so, but the way I think about it, and I didn't make this definition up, this was actually, I learned this, but mindfulness is an awareness of our internal world of thoughts and feelings and the outer world of actions and perceptions. So in any moment, you can shift your awareness internally or externally. And depending upon what might be going on in that moment, where it is most effective to be focusing can, can be different one or the other. I don't know that I've ever thought of it in that, in that way. That's a lot better definition. <laughs> see you come to the right place here yeah. um well and um if it may if you'd like i could just expand on that a little bit yeah absolutely um, okay because um that uh the, the idea is bringing your awareness again to your to your body to you, the internal world or like what you're experiencing internally in the body or again what's going on in the environment so uh this goes back several years um, so uh, I was um, at a store, 
was at Walmart, I will tell you, and um, watching out for falling prices. Ha ha ha. So I was at Walmart. <laughs> and I always say that. And so I was at one of the, the got my goodies and I was at the checkout. And in stores like that, there's is sort of rows and there's there's two rows of checkouts. And then in each row, there's one in the back and one in the front. So one row over and, and in front of me was this man and a woman. I'll assume probably probably brother and sister, maybe husband and wife. But so I'm there with my goodies and all of a sudden, uh, the basically it was one of those situations where the world stopped because the guy of this duo started to scream. And since this is a family show, I'm not gonna tell you exactly what he was screaming, but let's just say it involved F words. F this, F, 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 every other word was F. And it was, it was disturbing, right? So he is standing facing his sister or wife and just screaming and she's ignoring him. And the clerk is in front of him like bleep, bleep, ringing things up, just trying to get them out of there as fast as possible. Now I'm thinking to myself, you know, like I'm, um, I'm, you know, a coach, I'm a therapist, I'm supposed to like help people with anger, you know, to walk over and say, excuse me, sir, you seem to be angry. You know, um, please, maybe you want to look me up. I thought, no, O'Brien, you're not doing that. But I mean, but all kidding aside, it was like, he, he was not saying something like he was going to commit violence. So there was no, there was no real reason to intervene. But the, the point, and I do have one, it was really disturbing to see. But it was like a bad car crash where you just can't take your eyes off it, even though you know it's disturbing. So in that moment, the source of my disturbance was external. I went internal, focused on my breathing, feet on the floor um, to calm myself down. And then occasionally check back, yep, they're still there. And then went internal to, to um, be able to regulate myself and calm myself. And eventually they left. But that's an example of the disturbance being external and learning to go internal to be able to quiet yourself down when that's effective. Because there was no, there's no reason for me to intervene with that situation. I actually published this episode. I don't know if you uh, listened to it. It was the one with Roger Sparks. Oh, I didn't know. He is a Silver Star recipient. Oh. <clears throat> he was uh, a Marine. He went into special forces. He ended up becoming uh, one of the instructors that trained these force recon Marines. Mm -hmm. Eventually he left the Marine Corps and ended up joining the Air Force and joined their special forces, became wow. a pararescue man. He then spent the rest of his military career saving people. Um, so he went from one extreme to the other extreme Yep. and experienced trauma in both arenas. Yep. It was his actions in Afghanistan during Operation Bulldog Bite, where him and his partner were lowered down uh, by a cable from a helicopter into one of the fiercest battles. It was yeah, Operation Bulldog Bite. Uh, these these soldiers were just getting torn apart by the Taliban and mm -hmm. him and one other guy 
lowered down into that to save you know it's just it's an incredible story yeah and he did he saved so many lives that day and put himself in jeopardy and just was phenomenal and and he struggled with ptsd after he got out after he got back and he in the conversation we talk about uh you know his journey uh to to heal Mm -hmm. um and one of the things that came up was the mindfulness aspect and really um instead of focusing on so in this context it was these horrific events and there are times when i I mean i've done it with with other people from the fire service or law enforcement people where you like oh remember that one call and and you mentioned a couple of things a couple of details and everybody is right back there yep now what he was talking about was instead of outlining those details you can talk about the event but as the event progressed how are you feeling in those moments and and address the emotion that came with it what was that feeling the, the fear the terror the the hopelessness whatever it is uh the guilt that you couldn't save this person yeah um whatever it is but if you talk about the emotions you'll find that you can leave some of the horror in the past where it belongs and and heal much quicker mm-hmm. and he made a couple of comments that i ended up looking up because they were profound philosophical uh one uh well actually two of them were um from from buddhist teachings and it was, it was really interesting um but it, it, it led me to read this particular book that one of the quotes comes from. And it, the quote is attributed to the Buddha who was teaching uh, some of his disciples that were getting so focused on the practice of Buddhism and not really experiencing that mindfulness and the beauty of being present and just experiencing the right here and right now. Um, I, I just thought it was uh, pretty profound. Now, I guess it's not the first time that I've explored Buddhism, but I was a lot younger then. And now it just seems... Uh, the depth of that maybe just because of my life's experiences and being outside of myself so often um it just it was pretty incredible and and so when i think of well i've been turned off by that term mindfulness by people that use it frivolously 
because I feel like it's really being mindful of what you're experiencing in that moment, whether it's from external stimuli or just from being triggered from something that is not, not harmful to your health or your, anything, but because of a sound or a smell or something like that, you're, I mean, you go into that fight, flight, or freeze. You just start dumping uh, hormones, stress hormones, and like you're ready to fight or ready to run. Um, and and so that, it, it's such a powerful thing. And I, I was happy when I, I read in your email, uh, you know, the desire to talk about that because I think that it is such a powerful tool. Yeah, well, and the other definition that you are alluding to that I think of with mindfulness is learning to control your mind so that your mind does not control you. Yeah. Right? Because that's what you're saying is that something happens, there's a smell or something, and that you get activated and you, um, you know, for some people, they do literally blank out and feel like they're completely black back in whatever the event was. But for many people, they don't necessarily completely blank out such that they're back in the event, but that they start having the same physical sensations or maybe some images and, and it's disturbing. So it's about you know, learning grounding techniques and, and also recognizing that uh, it's, it's often important if you're experiencing a low in your life as a result of something like this to seek out a qualified therapist. Um, and to make sure that you find someone who knows what she or he is doing when it comes to trauma healing. And actually, um, I mean, for those that are in Maine, they've got you. They've got me, right? Uh, <laughs> There's and, others in the state too, fortunately. I don't have to deal with the entire state. <laughs> I, I have resources on, uh, uh, on my website for uh, veterans and first responders with PTSD. Excellent. So, right. um, and, and I have interviewed other mental health professionals uh, and one that specializes in EMDR, another that specializes in hypnosis. Um, there's uh, actually, and there are actually three uh, mental health professionals that I used, and that's why I I knew that they were effective. So I'm like, yeah, I want to talk to you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, one was actually, I want to say she was a graduate student in this program at the local university um, that has this program that was funded by um, federal grant money mm -hmm. to help. It was originally for uh, combat veterans that were returning home with PTSD. And it's the, uh, I always say immersion therapy, but it's- Exposure therapy? Expo exposure therapy, yes. Mm -hmm. So yep. that was the modality for that program. And I went through that program twice and I, it was effective. But it was so hard. I can see why a lot of people just say, screw this, I'm not doing this. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I did go through it 
and it was painful, it was horrible, but it was effective um, to a degree. Yep. Uh, by the time I went the second time, I was in such a bad state uh, that I, I ended up following up months later with EMDR and that was really phenomenal. No, and I, I've actually trained in exposure therapy and EMDR, and they both have their place, but I really um, favor EMDR because it is like an exposure therapy where you're re-experiencing the event, but with the bilateral stimulation, it's kind of happening more at um, rapid speed. So it's like you, and because it's painful as the clinician to be see people suffering. And so the more that we can help people move more quickly through the healing they need to do, certainly the better it is for everybody. One of the things that I've talked about is, and in, in we, we discussed it a little bit, but the self-care component, I, I tend to refer to it as self-leadership, effective self-leadership, uh, making those good sound decisions uh, for ourselves to better lead others. Mm -hmm. And the, I, I was wondering if you would Talk a little bit about some of the most important tools that you've found to, uh, you know, to arm leaders with uh, that maybe you found yourself working on these uh, with, with many of your clients more uh, regularly than others. Is, is there anything like that, that, that you found? Yeah, I think, um, well, a couple things come to mind. One is what ideally we all do, but often don't get enough time to do is exercise and the importance of exercise. Uh, and the more intense someone's job is, then the more vigorous exercise they need. And to be able to kind of uh, let go of or work through the stresses that build up in the body. Some people prefer to do that in the morning to inoculate themselves against what they're gonna face during the day. Some people prefer to do it at the end of the day. You know, research says from what I know, the ideal time to be doing vigorous exercise is mid to late afternoon. But like, well, that's great to know, but that's not gonna work for most of us. You know? so, so either, but, but to get that, and to prioritize that and figure out what barriers may exist for people to be able to get regular and effective exercise. Um, and the national guidelines are, I think it's 120 minutes of, of um, moderate exercise a week and two days of strength training. That's the, or 75 minutes of vigorous exercise and two days of strength training. Um, that's that's kind of the what's seen as a good baseline and building from there. But if you, especially at times when it's more stressful, we need to have, be getting more than that and figure out how we're going to build that in. So, um, you know, for for many people, that's a real challenge to talk about. There was a an article on entrepreneurs a few years ago. I remember, I think it was in Inc. magazine that talked about um, sleep, um, work, sleep family, fitness, and friends, work, sleep, family, fitness, and friends, you can only have three. <laughs> That's what this person was arguing. Um, so I'm not saying I agree with that, but that you know, 
that, but that I think many people, especially entrepreneurs, younger leaders, um, just figure they're going to sacrifice on things like sleep. And that's that's another big one is sleep regulation. So many leaders I work with, you know, sometimes it's that guy I mentioned in uh, the business magazine that was the young leader that was rewarded because he only slept like four hours a night. Um, I, I work with leaders who, and working with someone now that, you know, it, it's, uh, you know, three, four hours a night is all this person is getting. And that just, just you can you can maintain in a state like that, but that's the state called allostasis. Homeostasis is balance, a state of balance. Allostasis, A-L-L-O stasis, is a state of unhealthy balance. So people can become accustomed to functioning on three or four hours of sleep, but that doesn't mean it's healthy. So exercise, sleep. The other big thing I talk about with people from a mindfulness perspective, see, we're back to mindfulness. You knew I would get back to mindfulness, but is the idea of the internal critic and in getting people to be aware of their internal critic and what role that plays in, in their lives in motivating them or demotivating them and helping people learn how to motivate themselves in different ways. Um, so certainly I would say those, those would be you know, balancing sleep, getting exercise, um, and the internal critic and a lot of mindfulness skills, as well as, you know, my big passion, the area I want to be doing more work in is this area of incivility. Cause I think it's, you know, unfortunately lots of work for me to do on that out there. It's just so much of it in all aspects of our culture. If you just think about the last five years, how many experiences you've had that seem really insignificant, but it's exactly that. It's that buildup of incivility in the workplace that can really offset you. Oh, absolutely. And I think that that's, um, that's part of the reason that our, our culture is where it's at right now, people, you know, coming through two plus years of the pandemic and all the political stuff and um, on, on both sides, it's not restricted to one side, but it's just all the negativity and, um, and debate about things um, and how incivility has become the norm. I think it's made what was a terrible situation of a pandemic worse. And it's leading people, I, I keep saying to, to clients of mine, you know, remember, nobody is functioning at their best right now, except for me. And it's just, you know, the rest of you, it's too, I'm fine. <laughs> but, but seriously, like, keep that in mind. Nobody's functioning at their best right now. And so we're seeing more anger and um, incivility and difficulties with relationships at this point, because people are tired. And they're just not, they haven't really found a way to manage their stress more effectively or recognize the impact that our culture and their job or their family is having on them. Out of the, the many leaders that you've worked with, mm -hmm. successful, maybe they've had some difficulties, but you know, if you're if you're working with high-level organizational leaders, executives, they've experienced some success. Mm -hmm. 
is there a common is there a common thread that that you can see in, in these executives and these leaders that um, can be viewed as an attributing factor to their success? And if so, yeah. If so, what what is it? Okay. Um, I think obviously it's going to depend upon the field we're talking about. But let's just take, for example, business, or I've worked with a lot of leaders in medicine, high-level leaders in medicine. And uh, these are people who are very bright, uh, often in their trade, whatever that is, but very bright and skilled in the trade. So they have great um, IQ. But the people who are going to be most successful are also the ones who have a good amount of EQ or emotional intelligence. So that's often why people find their ways to me is because either they have good IQ and EQ and want to continue to work on developing themselves you know, as individuals in the EQ and using an emotional intelligence skills, or they have really high IQ, but they need to learn to develop their EQ, their emotional intelligence more fully. So I would say that, that, that the, the people that are the most successful are the ones who have a good balance of skills in both areas and recognize the need to be doing you know, growth and maintenance on themselves as they progress in their career. Since you mentioned emotional intelligence, mm -hmm. can you walk me through how you would help somebody improve their emotional intelligence? Sure. So obviously, I mean, we're talking about the components of emotional intelligence and it begins with ourselves, right? So it begins with growing your awareness. I hate to mention that word mindfulness again, because I know how much you love it, Dave, but I'm going to mention it again, right? Because it's, it's, it's about mindfulness. But, but part of that is also part of learning about yourself would be doing some sort of assessment. What that's going to involve will vary. Um, one of my favorite assessments that I like to use with, ex with executives, and this is not a plug for them, I don't get any kickbacks, um, but it's called the Hogan, the Hogan Personality Inventory. So it's something that's used for in a lot, a great deal in business. But I you know, part of my work as a psychologist and part of my training was I had to learn how to administer all kinds of assessments, which meant I had to take all kinds of assessments. So let's just say I have been doing and exploring the, uh, the nooks and crannies of my cerebral cortex all throughout my life. Um, but when I learned, I had heard about the Hogan and when I learned about it, it it's perhaps for me personally, one of the most profound experiences in terms of the results. So it's called the Hogan Personality Inventory because it talks about who are you at your best? What are the skills that you bring to life, to, uh, to work uh, when you're at your best? There's a section that talks about your values, motives. What is it that drives you and drives your behavior? So who at your best? What motivates you and drives you? But most importantly, who are you at your worst? Like, what 
do you look like behaviorally under stress? What are the negative behaviors that are going to emerge in you when you're stressed? And I, when I opened my, <laughs> my test, I laughed out loud because I was like, yep, that's me. Um, I become very, when I get really stressed, and if I'm not aware, I become very rule-driven and like focusing on what the right thing is to do and the right. So I, I literally laughed out loud when I got that feedback, but it was like, bingo, that I wish I'd had that 15 years ago when I first. So, so I start with comprehensive assessment, usually something like the Hogan to help grow people's self-awareness and then teach people skills to self-regulate. Just, you know, mindfulness um, serves as the foundation, but a lot of times it's other skills around, you know, managing anger um, and skills for things like you know, deep breathing um, or cognitive skills around, uh, you know, challenging negative thinking and being aware of thoughts. Then that goes on to helping people learn, and, and this is also part of the you know, self-awareness, but learn what's the impact I make on other people and getting them to think about, you know, when you write an, a memo on a Friday at 4.47 that says to your employees, important meeting, mandatory meeting on Monday, be there. And you don't give them any information about what that is. Well, imagine what that's like for them over the weekend. And so many people do that without realizing the impact of their behavior or leaving what's called kind of white space like that, that sends their employees, other people into a tailspin. So it's about learning to have empathy and also learning how to hold on and regulate yourself in situations when employees or subordinates are getting upset and learn to keep yourself grounded. So those are the types of things that I would work on with a leader. Sounded like you referenced cognitive behavior therapy in there. And earlier you mentioned DBT. Mm -hmm. What is the difference in those two? Because I'm not so, familiar with DBT. Aha. Uh -huh. Okay. Uh, so, so this is in the therapy world, but again, the work I have done as a therapist, I think, provides a foundation for the work I do as a coach. It's kind of like therapy light. That's <laughs> the way I think about it. But but Cognitive behavioral therapy is therapy that targets changing people's problematic behaviors and thought processes, right? So it's a broad term that can be used to describe a wide variety of theories that are used to help change people's behavior as well as thought process. Now, one of those types of therapies in the cognitive behavioral realm is called dialectical behavior therapy or DBT. And it was a therapy that was created by Marsha Linehan. Back in 1993, she first published on this. And basically it's a set of skills to teach people mindfulness. Sorry, there it is again, mindfulness. See, you're gonna be like, I'm never talking to this guy again. All he says <laughs> is mindfulness. <laughs> mindfulness, um, emotion regulation, distress tolerance, interpersonal effectiveness. So there's a set of skills, mindfulness being the basis, but to teach people to learn how to um, deal with emotions, deal with distress, deal more effectively with relationships. It's a form of treatment that was created for individuals with borderline personality disorder, which is a disorder in which people get highly distressed um, and have trouble regulating themselves and sometimes kind of end up like 
you know, uh, nuke, basically nuking their environment and causing major problems with others or sometimes getting very uh, suicidal. And so uh, Marshall Linehan you know, talked at a conference about rather kind of hilariously about you know, working with people with before DBT and like she would you know try to use her regular cognitive behavioral skills with people and you know um, they would they would come with a distress and she'd say I'm going to work on some sort of protocol for you and they'd come the next week and she'd say okay I've got a protocol to work on this issue with you and they're like that's not my problem now this is my problem now and she realized she was cognitive behavioral therapy can be too specific problem focused whereas DBT is more process focused in helping people learn how to regulate themselves more and track their symptoms more. And it's, it's really, I mean, I ran a DBT group for many years. Clients in my groups called it diabolical brain torture, DBT still, but, um, but you know, it, it's, well, it's useful for people who have trauma histories. It's useful for people who are just wanting to develop emotion regulation skills. I learned a great deal from learning the skills. So I use them myself as well. So it's a really interesting form of treatment that I think really anybody could benefit from. And you can read about it. You don't have to go to necessarily to therapy. You can just watch things online or, or read about the skills. Is there anything that we didn't touch on? As we, we covered a lot of ground, but is there anything that we didn't touch on that you feel is important to, to leave with the listeners before we go? circling back to emphasizing hope and that um, for anybody who's listening who may be in a dark place right now and and wondering about is there a way out that to reinforce that notion of hope and that whether it's in the form of a coach or a therapist or a mentor or a um, you know really trusted religious leader that um, you could seek out for people to really understand the importance of maintaining hope, especially at dark times um, like this. And I guess the other thing that I am talking a lot with people about is protecting themselves when it comes to consuming the news, because that's a major source of stress for many people. And so if people are curious, uh, this is a shameless act of self-promotion, but uh, on my website, I've actually written a blog about observing the war right now in Ukraine that's very disturbing for many people and just some survival strategies. Um, not to say that what we are experiencing in terms of the stress and watching it, it, that has nothing to do with what it's like to obviously be there, but it's just, it's so disturbing to see. So how to, whether it's that or stuff going on politically, how to limit your news consumption so that you don't cause yourself unnecessary stress. Uh, like I said earlier, I'm I'm going to have a link to your your website and all the links at the top. That there's one for your blog up at the top of. Yes, there is. Home. There is. Yep. Okay. Yep. So and and that is the best way to get in contact with you, or is yes, there... just to check out the website. Um, right. at, at ActivateSuccess.org is my website, and the email address is John at activatesuccess.org. So that's a way to reach me as well. Would you like me to have your email address in there? Yes, that's fine. That's right. fine. Yeah, that'd be great. I'll yeah. put that uh, underneath the website then. Sounds good. Um, John, I really, really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me about really so many different things, but how they 
interlace and really can improve our lives and the lives of those around us if we just work on those skills. And that I just really appreciate you uh, taking us to a, a higher level of understanding with with all of that. So I really appreciate it. Thank you. Well, Dave, I appreciate you having me. Um, so thank you for the work that you're doing in um, getting you know the news out there about various treatments, about various coaches and some resources out there. So thank you for, for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of From Embers to Excellence. Please like and subscribe to my YouTube channel. Follow me on your favorite podcast platform and visit hollenbachleadership.com for additional content. My goal is and always will be to add value to as many people as possible. So if I can be of any assistance to you or someone you know, please connect with me via email or on one of my social media accounts linked on the homepage of my website. Remember, our failures don't define us unless we let them, and the only true measure of a leader is the success of their team.